Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has five years of law enforcement analysis experience, spending time with both Independence Police Department and Lenexa Police Department in the state of Kansas. She is currently the secretary of the Mid-America Regional Crime Analyst Network, also known as MARCAN. She's the district coordinator for Kansas Intelligence Association, and she teaches digital safety for kids and families. Please welcome Lindsay Cavillo. Lindsay, how are we doing? Great. How are you, Jason? I am doing very well. I see uh, this is uh, a matter of weeks. I've had two Lindsays on the program, and I had told a story with the other Lindsay that if how I butchered a woman's name back in the day, spelled Lindsay, and I see you and the other Lindsay spell your name differently. So I did not know there were so many different spellings for Lindsay. There, there really are. All right. And then I got that last name. All right. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's a tricky one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we got a lot to go over today. We're uh, certainly going to talk about Marcan. We'll certainly talk about the digital safety for children and families. But first, I want to start with how you discovered the law enforcement analysis profession. (laughs) Well, I actually fell into it accidentally. Prior to law enforcement. I was working as a youth and children's master uh, minister. I was a Air Force Reserve chaplain, and I was working in schools as a soccer coach and as an athletic director. <laughs> and really, the catalyst was my husband and I needed better insurance, <laughs> and they had the position open for an investigative specialist. It was an admin role at Independence, and I applied for it, and I got it. <laughs> and that was really how I just started my law enforcement analysis career. I didn't know it then because it was just an admin role with a lot of extra analytical responsibilities, but that was the beginning. Yeah, that's fascinating then. How'd you find that? It was just... <laughs> I was I was looking for other positions, mm-hmm. particularly ones that had better insurance packages than what we were already <laughs> dealing with. And I happened to know somebody who worked for that police department, and I asked them if they thought that I might be a good fit for the position. And they said, yeah, I should go ahead and apply. And then, yeah, I got accepted and the rest is history. Okay. What are your responsibilities as an investigative sport? <laughs> so in that position, I had... Um, quite the variety. It was, I did things like payroll. I did scheduling for the detectives uh, and the admin side, but then I also did criminal histories. I was in charge of the the fingerprint cards, basically getting the uh, charge information to the state of Missouri. And I was also the one that handled the major crime case files. So I was helping keep track of the, basically what a record of record-keeping detective would do during major cases, I was helping keep track of that to prepare the case files for prosecutors. Hmm. So is this position, have you found other people that also held this position as you've gone on and met more people at police departments? Outside of that department? No, I have not. Yeah, it seems a little bit like there was like three or four needs (laughs) Right. (laughs) Part-time needs. So they like, let's just create one full-time position that's going to do these three needs and call it a day. Yeah, I think that 
it does seem like that in a lot of ways. I don't know how much the people that came after me, if they've continued with a lot of those roles. I know some of those roles were kind of dissolved, but I don't know how much of some of the other analytical pieces they kept doing. They mm-hmm. could still be doing it for all I know. Yeah. So just take us back to the your first week, your first month there walking into the police department as working this investigative support function. What are the, some of your feelings? What are, the, what are the things that you're learning? What are the obstacles? So I just want to mention again, I came into this with zero prior law enforcement background. Mm-hmm. So really, when I was walking in, I had no idea what I was getting into and what was going to be happening. And so I'm going to go back the very first day that I walked into the police department for my very first day on the job. I get on the elevator and one of the detectives is taking me up to the investigations unit. And as we go up, we end up stopping on the second floor and another detective comes on and I haven't met anybody that works there yet. Mm -hmm. So as I'm going up the elevator, the second detective, he looks at me and obviously has no idea who I am. And he says, you can't be coming up here. We don't know who you are. And I thought he was joking. I thought it was just a joke. And he's like, no, you really can't be coming up here. This is a place for there's like classified information. You can't be coming onto the floor. And the other detective with me, he's like, hey, she's our new admin. (laughs) And so that was my very first experience, my very first like 10 minutes in the building. (laughs) And I'm like, whoa, what am I getting into? So that by that time, you didn't have any kind of uh, ID No, this was my very first day. So later in the day is when they sent me over to HR to get my ID, to get all of that, to get my paperwork all done. But no, right when I first walked in, they just took me up to the desk and that was it. So you mentioned that you didn't know anybody. So what was the interview process like? Well, it was interesting. So when I walked in, it was a panel interview like they do most places. I'm guessing that most people involved in law enforcement don't have a ministry background. I mean, that's a lot how ministry interviews go too, is you have a panel interview to make sure that you can go through the ministry process and become licensed and everything. So it really wasn't that big of a deal for me because I was used to that, but their questions were generic enough and not necessarily specific to law enforcement that I was able to, it wasn't a big deal. They were basically trying to figure out my personality and if I would fit. Yeah. So what kind of questions did they ask you? (laughs) Well, they were kind of concerned about, so I was coming from ministry and going into law enforcement and that's kind of a red flag for people because Mm -hmm. they think that I won't be able to deal with the culture, (laughs) that it'll be pretty a rough adjustment. But again, I was in the military prior to that and I haven't been in the church my entire life. So it wasn't a big deal, but they were afraid. My husband, his name is Jesus. So they were afraid that I was coming from ministry. I worked in the church and I was married to Jesus. (laughs) And they thought (laughs) for sure that was going to be a terrible mix at first. But they asked me about my qualifications for like multitasking, administrative background and things like that. And, And then, yeah, they asked how I could deal with difficult people. So those were the kinds of questions they asked. Yeah. And did they expect like the people in the office to be difficult because you're not dealing with the public? Well, they expected me to be working with police officers and they were afraid (laughs) that me dealing with police officers would be quite a culture shock from what I was used to. Okay. And so was it like you go in there and you've been doing this job for a little bit? And so was it a culture shock for you? No, not really. I mean, it was different than my previous jobs, but it wasn't something that was so crazy. Yes, they were for sure more vulgar than who I worked with, generally speaking. But again, I came from a background in the military and I came from um, a family who's kind of along a little rougher on the edges. And so it really wasn't that 
big of a culture shock for me. It was Hmm. more just kind of learning the details of the job. And really, I think the biggest shock had less to do with the people I was working with and more to do with some of those cases I was involved in because I was working, I was assisting with all of those major cases. So I was seeing all these terrible things that people were seeing to each other that before that I'd really only seen on the news or like in movies. But now I was dealing with, here's what people are actually doing to each other in real life and being thrown into that environment very quickly. Yeah. So you're dealing with violent crime at this point, right? Correct. Yeah. Most of the major cases that I assisted with were, I think all of them actually were violent crime. Okay. And so then is there a certain threshold? How did cases get assigned to you? Well, they weren't assigned to me. It was any time like a homicide or if there was a kidnapping or if there was major like robbery series or violent crime series that I was assisting with the detectives. There wasn't a threshold. It was basically anytime we have one of these cases, it's kind of all hands on deck and I'm one of those all hands on deck. Okay. All right. And is there any any case in particular as you are doing this investigative support that sticks out as you think back? There's a few. One of them that really sticks out is my very first major case on the job. It was, I had started sometime in June of that year. And then in September, we had this really big major case that ended up being an officer-involved use of force. Mm. And we had that case in particular, the FBI was involved in. So we had to put this case file together within a 24 or 48-hour period. It was super fast. And it was my very first one. And it was going to be extra scrutinized because the FBI was going to go through it. And it ended up being this use of force and that officer ended up being indicted federally and ended up going to prison. And so that was, that was really intense, like trial by fire, where I had to learn everything as fast as I could. Wow. So what were some of the details behind the use of force? It was this officer was involved in I can't remember if it was a traffic stop or if it was a just a car check, but mm-hmm. basically he came up to this car and it was I think I think he was 17 the driver mm-hmm. and he was being non-compliant and he wouldn't come out and then the officer ended up eventually tasing him and tasing him for too long and when he was helping bring him out of the car he just kind of dropped him on the road. So it was, and I mean, the videos were released. It was, it was one of those national people were bringing it up. And I actually started getting, because I was in charge of all the administrative investigative emails, I started getting some of the hate mail to me too. So it was, but yeah, it was a tasing incident. I gotcha. And so did the, the person arrested, did they end up dying or? No, no, he's no, he survived. Okay. Okay. So, but it was obviously an excessive use of force. Yeah, there you go. That's the words <laughs> yeah. that I'm working for. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So then what are you being asked to do? What data are you pulling or what, what are you putting together for the FBI? Well, so at that time I was just brand new. So basically mm-hmm. at that time they had me, I had to go into kind of like a war room, the command room. So I was there with all of the investigations supervisors and they mm-hmm. were really doing most of it because they were assigning leads and then they were waiting for reports to come in. And then we had to go through and revo- review the reports that came in and put it in order. I was basically at that point, just compiling the leads and compiling the reports because mm-hmm. I had only been there a couple of months and I had not yet experienced a major case. So wow. that very first one, it was just kind of compiling all of the reports that were coming in and getting it ready to hand off that case file to the FBI. Okay. That's interesting. Certainly nerve wracking 
<laughs> right. The FBI is is involved, right? Especially with your your first one. So, I mean, as you look back, I mean, how how do you feel you did given given that scenario? It's funny because I look back at it now and I think of all of the major cases that I've worked since mm-hmm. that time and I really think I really didn't do very much. <laughs> like oh. at the time, it felt like a lot of pressure and like I was compiling all this stuff and getting it in order and I was helping them review everything. But I mean, in comparison to what I've done since then, sure. it really wasn't a lot that I was helping them with. <laughs> okay. Right. I was just keeping it organized, basically. All right. So so you're in the investigative support role for, is it three years? It was like two and a half to three years. Two yeah. and a half years. And then does an analyst role pop up at independence? Yes. Or, okay. Uh-huh. And and so then obviously you put in for that. And is is that, was there an open competition for that position or they they just interviewed you? Oh, uh, no, it was an open competition. I think because they put it out publicly mm-hmm. and nationally. And I think that they ended up having like 50 ish people that applied and they interviewed about 13. I was actually the number two person selected. I was not number one. And the person that was number one selected, she had analyst experience, Mm -hmm. but she lived in Tennessee. And so it didn't end up working out with her because she didn't end up relocating to the Kansas City area for whatever reason. And so it worked out that I was the number two spot. So I got the position. Oh, man. How does that make you feel? (laughs) you weren't their first choice but you're their second choice right you know i was also the second choice for the investigative specialist role (laughs) so so i started to take that as a good thing (laughs) that's where like ignorance is bliss right right i always joked around that yeah i was i got the position but i was the fifth person they asked (laughs) right at least i was number two (laughs) yeah that's true that's true so so that's and then same scenario it's a panel interview Mm -hmm. how was the two interviews different (laughs) well so my first interview was two sergeants and two captains Mm -hmm. that were interviewing me for the investigative support role and then the person that was previously previously in my position as investigative support she was in that one also so she actually the reason she was leaving the investigative support role is because she was taking on a crime analyst role at independence so my second interview it was the lead crime analyst and then it was this lady again for my Mm -hmm. second one and then it was a major but then it was also the analyst that was vacating the spot i had put in for okay so it was three analysts and a major so it was it was very different because some of the interview consisted of very specific crime analyst questions like some knowledge and skill sets and things like that other ones were more personality driven to see if i would be a good fit for the unit and some like basic crime theory sorts of questions yeah. so and it and it's different because it was mostly non-sworn as opposed to my first one that was completely sworn who were terrified that I was going to be offended by everything every single thing I heard. What kind of just if you can think of the example of crime analysis type questions that they asked you. <clears throat> I'm trying to remember. I remember we talked about broken windows theory. Mm-hmm. I know that came up. I know they asked me some things about um, spatial analysis. And I think they asked me some crime pattern and trends questions. I, I know that's vague, but it was a while ago since yeah. I had that. <laughs> no, that gives me a general understanding. I was just curious. Uh, the, the the interview process for analysis is, is interesting it to is. me because it, if it is 
a panel interview and I just think that some of the panel interview doesn't necessarily work for analyst role because I just think in that environment, we you probably are never going to be put, most likely you are never going to be put in that scenario again, right? Yeah, I, Whereas I, if you're an officer, the panel interview, I mean, you you could be put in your, in your career, you're, you might be put in a similar position, whether you're testifying in court or answering in some department situation, but as an analyst, that that you're probably never going to be in that a similar situation again, other than doing another interview. Yeah, I agree. So, but anyway, you got through all that. You were number two, but <laughs> it worked out for you. And so then, how was that transition going from? investigative support to now be in the crime analyst? It was um, honestly a nightmare. <laughs> so when you move from one position in an agency to another position, it's usually kind of a struggle because they want to fill your current position before they move you to the new one. On top of that, we were having, in, in the investigations unit, we were having a lot of issues. There was a particular supervisor that was causing basically a hostile work environment. He was not easy to work for. He was not easy to get along with. He was causing a lot of issues. And so right in the middle of me applying and me trying to transition to my new position, I actually ended up in a pretty large IA as the complainant and Hmm. against the supervisor. And when I went to, when I found out it was actually going to become an IA, I had first just discussed some of the notes I had been keeping for about six months up to this point. I'd been keeping notes on some of the incidents that had been taking place in our detective unit. And when I ended up talking to another supervisor about those notes, he told me that he was going to talk it over with the chief and find out what we needed to do. Mm-hmm. And so that I think was a Friday when I gave him my notes. And on Monday, I got called down to the chief's office with him and this other supervisor. And they said that they were going to make this an IA complaint, and they were going to involve HR in the whole process. Oh, man. So, and, so, and so this, this happens. And had you now did you, you might have said this, had you just applied for the crime analyst role at this time, or you were about I, to? No, I had actually already gone through the entire process for oh, the crime okay. analyst role. So I already knew the position was mine. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so I just this... hadn't, yeah, I just hadn't transitioned to my new spot because they were still trying to find someone to backfill my other spot. Okay. Now with this sergeant, had you worked with them the whole time in the two or three years or had this just been the last six months? No, I had started with, I started with a different supervisor mm-hmm. uh, and that supervisor ended up promoting And when he promoted out, I think it was about, it was probably nine months to a year that this new supervisor was my supervisor. Okay. All right. So then just for general understanding, will you give us some examples of what the behavior that this sergeant did to create this IA case? Yeah. So like some examples, my husband is Mexican and it was well known that I was married to a Mexican. And so he would make a lot of discriminatory comments against Mexicans. He would make vague comments about like building a wall or he would just make other things, other comments derogatory towards Mexicans. And at one point he said, we have a, we have a son. And at one point he said that, well, you're going to have to go ahead and split your son in half and send half of him to Mexico now that we're dealing with this legislation. I mean, some other things he would make sexual comments about 
some of the detectives significant others and like if you blank that i want pictures or if you hit that i want pictures and videos i mean he would make other comments like if a detective upset him he would say i hope he gets violently gang raped or things like that those are just kind of general those are kind of tame but to give just sort of an idea so so, i mean it just seems so out of place in in today right right Uh, but I mean, was he the only one doing this kind of behavior or do you, do you feel that it's the culture there? I don't know that he was the only one doing those. He just seemed to be one of the more extreme cases. Does that make sense? He's very overt about it. Right. Right. And so I can't say for sure that there was no one else doing that. There's, it's hard. There is somewhat of a good old boys kind of a system, but Mm -hmm. I don't I don't know that they were all as extreme as the case that he was in. Okay. So then how does this IA case get resolved? (laughs) Well, first, before it gets resolved, the IA itself took about six months Mm -hmm. and it involved like 30 to 40 different employees (laughs) at our police department. But the very, (laughs) you mentioned earlier, what was my first day or my first months like in the job? And so my very first day as crime analyst, when I when I had talked to the chief and he had told me it was going to become an IA, later that week, I had already scheduled vacation to go help my sister move. So I was going to be out of town. And he said, oh, that's great. We'll talk to him while you're out of town. And then on Monday, I want you to just go straight into the crime analyst office. And that's where you're going to work from now on to have separation there. Okay. So, so I went to, I went out of town with my sister and then I came back on Monday and I came back to the crime analyst office first thing in the morning and I get a call and the chief says, Hey, we didn't, something came up. We didn't get a chance to talk to this guy last week. We're going to talk to him this morning in about 20 minutes. I want you to get out of the building. Oh. <laughs> and it was, it was so terrifying at that thing. I was like, what have I just gotten myself, myself into? into? So <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, now you think, all right, I didn't feel like my life was in danger, but right. now I feel like my life's in danger. Right. 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 Then, oh, that's brutal. So, th- so what? Then, what do you do? You head home? Yeah, I just I went I went to my house. I hung out at my house, and he said he said we'll give you a call when it's time to come back in when it's over, and we'll let you know. So I was there probably. I think it was probably about an hour, maybe a little bit longer. And I get the call and and he said, okay, you can come back in. We talked to him. Everything went okay. Just come on back in. <laughs> and so I really have yeah. no idea like what happened. I just know. They told me to leave. I left. I came back and they're like, yeah, it's fine. (laughs) Oh man, that had to be the longest hour of your life. Oh my word, it was. And I was calling my husband like, I don't know what's going on, but they told me to go home. Like, should we move? (laughs) 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 Should we move? Yeah, let's go. Let's go now. Right. Right. Oh man. And I don't know if you've ever been a part of an IA, but like the very first meeting that you have with the IA captain. So the IA captain was there and then it's the lady from HR. They're in there doing the interview. And so in the very first part, so this is after they did the notification to Mm -hmm. the supervisor that it happened. This was like a day or two later, maybe. Mm -hmm. So I have to go in and have this meeting. And as the captain's going through telling you like how the investigation's going to go, what you're going to do, we're going to have this interview. Here's the recording. Here's what I'm going to go through to ask you these questions. And he says, and then we're going to give a copy to your supervisor and his attorney. (laughs) I was like, 
uh, do I have to? (laughs) (laughs) And, and so he said that, I mean, if you don't make that available and open publicly, then basically it's case closed and you are rescinding your complaint. And so I knew from that time when I sat down in that chair, from the time we started that everything that I said was going to be available. (laughs) So Hmm. that was a terrifying, that whole that whole thing was a terrifying, stressful process that lasted for six months. So you mentioned that there was 40 other people that were part of the case and in, in, in that. So there were certainly other co-workers that corroborated your your claim. Correct. Right? Correct. And they they were able to. So they could only corroborate as much as they actually saw. So the sure. things that happened when other people weren't around, like some of the discriminatory comments, were not things that they could um, legitimately back up. And so it's hard when you go through that investigative process, knowing that there are some things that unless you record those things right as they're happening, they can't positively say that that happened. And so it's your word against theirs. So at that point, there's some things that you cannot back up unless they're recorded. Yeah. But certainly they probably were asked, have you ever heard the sergeant say anything? Yeah, they were. This, and I know this. I know that they brought up several other things that he had been involved in that I was not aware of. So I know a lot of things came up during that investigation. So, but I mean, I'm guessing since you're the name on the complaint that you're <laughs> yes. considered the whistleblower for lack of better words. Yeah, correct. And so then was there any pushback was there any supporters that you were dealing with? And you're still a civilian right. working with a bunch of sworn. How did, how did that all play out? So, I mean, a lot of the detectives, when, when we started, started the process and even right before they knew what was going on the whole time, they had seen it because it was happening to them too, just as much. Mm-hmm. It happened to everybody that was working with the guy. And so they were very supportive. They were sharing information. Um, well, and they knew my notes that I had, and it was actually another detective who went who went first to this other supervisor to say, hey, Lindsay has this information. I think you need to hear it. <laughs> and so it was more the detectives that were the ones that instigated that whole thing. It was hard for me because I was right in that process of transition, and I didn't want people to think that I was pushing this issue because I wanted to get into my spot. Because don't get me wrong, I absolutely wanted to get into my crime analyst role. I yeah. did, but I didn't want that to be the way I started. It didn't, it didn't feel right as my entry into crime analysis. Yeah. Huh. But yeah, as the investigation was ongoing, occasionally I would see detectives or talk to detectives and, and they were all uh, supportive. They would say, we, we acknowledged as much as we could that we had heard him say, we told them some of the things that we heard too. And it was just kind of a variety of responses, but most of the detectives were really supportive about the whole thing for me anyway. Yeah. So, so what happened with the sergeant? So after they concluded their investigation, I got the HR lady came and met with me afterwards to say that they had found it for hostile work environment. That there were definitely elements of discrimination, hostile work environment and sexual harassment. And they, so they were putting that in the file, the, mm-hmm. but when I sat down and I spoke with the chief and the supervisors, they were telling me that going through arbitration, they weren't able to back up everything 100% because some of it was just he said, she said, or because it wasn't recorded. It was documented, but not recorded. So if we were to go through an arbitration process, any of those other individuals who are involved in the IA, their stuff would become readily available for the supervisor, and none of them are wanting that. None of 
none of them wanted to have their stuff outed. So that's what would happen with the arbitration process if I wanted to push it to that, but they weren't going to because they didn't think we had a good chance with it. So he ended up being moved from the investigations unit to the patrol unit. So wait a minute, your information went public and everybody else's stayed in-house. Yes. That is too bad. And I knew, I knew from that very first meeting with the IA captain that that was a good possibility because that was what he was telling me is that whoever is the complainant, their information gets put out there. So that was when I was sitting in that chair in that very first meeting, I had to make that choice. And, and I chose to go ahead and go for it, hoping that it would help change some things. Man. And so this is this is what, like 2017 timeframe? Yeah, it must like... have been. Yeah, it must have been right around 2017 because it was right during my transition and I started an analysis in January of 2017. I gotcha. So I guess, I mean, how does it sit with you now? You stepped up, but everybody else kind of uh, took a step back when push came to shove. You know, it was looking back at it now. I mean, at the time, it was really hard and I'm still. I'm still glad I went through with it so that I could at least put a spotlight on it while I was there. It didn't change things as much as I had hoped that it would. It's funny though, because right after I moved, the lead analyst at the department, she was pregnant and getting ready to have a baby. So not long after this, while we're right in the beginning of all of this, she ended up going on maternity leave for three months. So I'm learning all the crime analysis stuff, but I'm now in this office all by myself, removed from investigations where I'd been the whole start of my career. I'm going through this terrible IA process, like feeling like I'm an isolated island. It was it was a terrible experience. I'm not glad that I had it, but I do think that some things are better for it. I think the most frustrating thing for me at the time was that I had really put myself out there like that. And, and I mean, these detectives wanted that they had seemed to really want me to put myself out there. And then now that I'm out there, I'm now this isolated Island, like with hardly ever contact with them because they wouldn't just come down a flight of stairs. So I think that that gave me a really good idea of what kind of a culture that particular place is, but maybe sadly, I think that there's probably a lot of places in policing where it's like that. Yeah. I I think you do see this as the idea of being blue, I guess, is a is a way that I've heard it described, like you, the, the, the fraternity or, or however you want to describe it, of being a sworn officer. And right. there's obviously folks didn't want to go out on record as to calling out one of their own. Honestly, I completely understand because what they were, what they were afraid of was retribution down the road. That's what they were, that's what they were afraid of. And that part I felt was... I could understand that part more because at least they spoke up during the investigation. At least they talked to HR. At least they talked to IA. I could live with the fact that I was the only one going out there. But then when I kind of got hung out to dry, that was the part that I was like, come on, guys. I thought I was one of you, but obviously I wasn't. And I guess maybe I could also see somebody's feeling being like, look, this is bad, but it's not a fireable offense. And so maybe they didn't want the sergeant to get fired. And they felt if we go through arbitration, the sergeant will get fired. I mean, I mean, I don't, you could rationalize it, I guess, any way you wanted to. It's just, I think it's too bad that somebody that's like, they're, they're officers, they're seeing stuff and, and arresting people and doing this, this type of stuff all the time. And when they see something 
that shouldn't be happening, even if it's in-house, it should be something that they should be stepping up up for because it clearly wasn't just an isolated incident. You had right. you had your te- your testimony plus you had there was 40 people involved. So this is clearly there's a there's a lot of material there to go on. Right. Well, and I mean that's why it took 6 months because there were so many people involved. Yeah. Hmm. So, man. So did you run into the sergeant as an analyst once once this whole thing because you go on to be an analyst in the middle of this whole thing but you work there at at independence for another three years before you leave correct yeah so after not long after that they end up doing a hiring process for my my previous position and so i was actually involved in that interview process i did not run into him during that time but when they brought up the new person i occasionally had to go up there and train her like to help her to get up to speed. Sometimes she could come down to my office, but sometimes we had to do it at her desk. Mm-hmm. And and it was right next to where his office was, or maybe he had moved his office by that time. I can't remember. But yeah, I had a couple of run-ins and it was basically just a quick pass by where he would see that I was there and just keep on walking. He might say hi or something, but that was about it. After he ended up moving back to patrol, I think I could probably count on my ta- my hands the number of times that we interacted. It wasn't very often, and it was usually very quick. Yeah. Is he still on patrol, or at least when you <laughs> left, or was there anything more in he terms actually, of his? He actually just recently retired. Oh, okay. Within the last couple months. So he's he, uh, to, oh. he to finish out. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he just retired a couple months ago, or well, within the last couple months. Okay. Hmm. All right. Well... I'm sorry you had to go through through all of that, but man, that is uh, fascinating. And it's Uh, a learning experience for sure. Sure, sure, sure. All right. So I do want to touch a little bit before (laughs) before we leave to Lenexa. I do want to talk a little bit about your time as an analyst with Independence, because I think you have a couple of good stories here that you want to share that get into you you mentioned before your first case there at independence that you didn't feel that you really did that much analysis but so you got some some couple other stories that you want to tell here your analyst badge stories if you will for for those that listen to the show often so the the career defining case or projects that you're working on so what's the first one you want to tell uh so I think I'll start with in 2017. So this was not long after I started as an analyst. Our deputy chief at the time, he wanted to start a violent offender initiative because over that summer in 2017, well, in the previous year, we'd seen such an increase in shootings, shootings into buildings, shootings into cars, shootings like bullet to skin shootings, things like that. And so he wanted to start a violent offender initiative. And my role in that was I was going to work with our street crimes, our patrol, our other proactive units, and basically data mine the last two years of violent crime reports. So that was a very long process, you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But so I went through and after going through all of these reports, I was able to determine who some of our most prolific violent offenders, the ones that kept coming up over and over and over again. And by defining some of that information, me and the other analysts in our unit, we put together some kind of info, some information packets on these suspects. So it had their previous case history, 
in our city. It had previous case history from other agencies. It had some open source stuff that we were able to locate and it had like criminal history information, et cetera. All of that kind of information, we put that together and then we would meet with the street crimes and our proactive units to kind of try to address the situation. So we started with five and we would just try to do five to 10 at a time. Mm-hmm. So we came up with the first five and they started working these cases and then our first 10 and they started working these cases. And again, these are people that are involved in armed robberies. They're involved in attempted homicides they're drive-by shootings, all kinds of aggravated violent crime that they've been involved in. And over time, it didn't take a long time, just over a couple of months, we were able to start seeing some of these people being indicted federally because of some of their gun crimes, because of their gun sales, or just the different nexus that they had, if it was in Kansas and Missouri, things like that. So we started to see these people get put behind bars. And because I got to pay or play such a a big role from the very beginning, that's what, that's kind of like what my view of an analyst should be is being able to help and assist in putting these people behind bars and working as that team to make it happen. All right. So that's interesting. So then as you're developing these five to 10 targets, you're working with prosecution. You certainly said you're working with the feds and saying this, these are folks that are contributing to the, the violence in the city and so you're working together with other departments there to get Correct. them get them off the streets, so to speak. Right. And mostly mostly my part was gathering that information for our supervisors or our detectives or whoever it was to have those conversations with the feds, to have those conversations with prosecutors. Because it was an outline of here is their history and here is why they're a risk. And we keep seeing them th- these risks happen over and over again. So then, I mean, and it sounds like there you, you had some, you were given some leeway as into what, what actual the five that you, that were picked, right? Yeah, uh, sort of. I mean, I had to be able to back it up with the sure. data. Yeah. But these yeah. were the people who were involved in the most violent offenses in the city at the time. Yeah, but still, it's it's still important to have that influence. Right. That you're not just throwing out names or you're giving them, okay, here's a list, here's a list of 100. <laughs> right. And then they're picking five to 10. You're saying, okay, I think we should include this person because X, Y, and Z. Right. And the and the real reason for keeping it such a small list at a time was to make it actionable and make it something that oh, yeah. was some that could actually be handled at that time too. We didn't want to say, go get a hundred people. We wanted to say, here, let's look at a small number and see what kind of a difference that can make. All right. So that kind of, <laughs> that settles you in a little bit, a little turbulence right. in the beginning, but then you get this really good task to, to do as an analyst. All right. right. Good. All right. What, what about another case? So we had uh, another set. This was pretty early on in my analyst career there too, I believe, but it was commercial burglaries. They were hitting, the suspects were hitting fast food restaurants overnight mm-hmm. times. They were breaking out the drive-through windows and then they were targeting the cash registers for whatever money was in there. And we were able, patrol actually reached out to me because it happened two weekends in a row. And so midnight patrols reached out to me specifically and asked if I could sort of look into it. So I started going through some of the reports and seeing some of the patterns because it was all in kind of the same general location, same general time frames. And I saw that they had lifted some prints at one of the place at one of the places. So we at the time we had a latent 
latent print examiner who worked for our department and her office was right down the hall from me. So I asked her, we had a general idea for a suspect. I can't remember where we got his name from, but somewhere his name had come up. And so I just asked her if she could compare those prints with the ones that we lifted from the fast food chain. So she did it. And within an hour, she was able to confirm that, yeah, this is the same guy. We talked to the detective unit. And when I talked to him, I said, hey, here's what we have. Here's the cases that are linked. Um, Here's what our latent print examiner has found. So we think that this is going to be a suspect. Plus, we did have some surveillance, but it was far and it's fast food restaurant. So it's got like grease over it. (laughs) So you can only vaguely see who the person is. But um, our detective went out and talked to the guy and brought him back to the station and he ended up confessing. Nice. So it was it was nice because it was really pretty quickly that we were able to establish who it was. So from the time of the crime to the time of getting him talking to a detective was pretty fast. But it was nice because it was patrol, our latent print examiner, crime analysis and detective unit all working together cohesively. And that's what helped make it happen so fast. It's funny. As I hear that story, the most shocking thing that sticks in my mind is that a restaurant would keep money in a cash register overnight. Right. <laughs> and I don't think it was a large amount, but still. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just like, I would just assume that they have safe on, on right? hand and that's where that would go. Because really, the, and unless they have the cash register tied down or locked down, you could just pick that register up. If you're getting in the building, you just pick it up and take it out. Right. right? Uh-huh. So it's funny to me that they're leaving cash in the cash registers but yeah that's 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 interesting that that they had that i thought you were going to mention the grease over the the uh, surveillance videos because that's like the worst thing at fast food restaurants yeah what's funny there's that i don't know if it's a meme or what but it's like it's comparing surveillance video with the video we get from like the mars rover oh yeah the mars (laughs) rover has like (laughs) hd quality Right, it's millions of miles away, and we get this, you know, eight (laughs) pixel uh, view from From three feet away. (laughs) Yeah, so yeah, so that doesn't surprise me that that the surveillance video would be not so good there. So, all right, very good. And then you have one last one. It's another B and E series, right? Yes. Yeah, I do. This one, I think. This one was closer to the end of my time at Independence Mm -hmm. before I switched out. But basically what happened was it was another breaking and entering. We had a historic site that kept getting burglarized and it was mostly happening again overnights and on the weekends and it kept happening. And so first they start with burglaries and then it's burglaries and MS-13 tagging that they're doing on the building. So I start looking into it. I have patrol officers who are talking to me about it. We're trying to figure it out. As we're in the middle of trying to figure all this out, there's a drive-by shooting at a residence that's not too far from there. And the victim of the drive-by shooting, when the officers go to talk to his mom, they find MS-13 tagging in the garage. And so that's our first indication that, oh, well, maybe this is somehow related. Mm -hmm. So we relayed that information on to detectives and street crimes and let them know that was happening. And patrol stayed on it. Patrol was really getting frustrated with this because it kept happening. So, and we gave some other potential suspects. At one point, we gave a potential suspect and we told about that information, but we were told no, Somebody else says that it's their family member, and we are going to go with that. We think that's who it is. And as we were waiting, they talked to that person, and they're like, yeah, we still think that it's who that is. And then there was one afternoon that it was probably 
five or six o'clock in the evening. And I actually got a phone call at home from one of the patrol officers that I'd been working closely on it with. And he said, he said, Lindsay, did you hear what happened? And I said, no. And he said, well, I'm kind of sick to my stomach about it. I said, well, you better tell me (laughs) what happened. (laughs) And so he said that he was at this historic site. They just got a call because some 60, 60 year old lady got stabbed three times with a pair of scissors. So we go back and I actually went back into the office to try to get the notes to find out what happened. And so apparently our suspect who we had been telling them about at this other address, he was there at the historic site, just kind of hanging out. And this this lady showed up, she volunteered for the place and she had parked there and he wanted to steal her car and she put up a really good fight, but he ended up, he had a pair of the historic site scissors of all things. And he stabbed her in the back three times with it and stole her car. Uh, and and it was she, this, and it was this guy. Uh, now, did she survive? She did survive. Yes. Right. She had, she had to go right into surgery from what I remember, but she ended up surviving. Yeah. Now she, was she able to identify him or how, how was he identified? So there was surveillance there. And I think that our officers ended up stopping him in the stolen vehicle. Cause I don't actually remember if she ID'd him, but I know that our officers did. Oh, That's too bad that it took an assault to get that guy. Right. The street, and that was, that was a frustrating thing because I'd had these other experiences where we worked so well as a team and mm-hmm. where uh, we were able to make things happen when we worked as a team. But then when we were getting into this investigation and, and there was some lack of follow through that led up to this assault on this woman that I mean, could have been prevented. So it was a very frustrating thing for me. And I know that's not uncommon in policing anyway, but it was just a very frustrating thing to know that something could have been prevented and we had already been focusing so hard on it, but we still were unable to prevent it. Yeah. Confirmation bias can be pretty powerful. Right. So, all right. Oh. Very good. We just got him at the end and she, she didn't die. I mean, I guess that's the best you can say for that right. situation. So I'm going to move on because I, I love these stories, right? so we <laughs> right. could do this. We could do this all day, but right. we're gonna, I do want to move on because you, you eventually do leave <laughs> independence in 2020 and you go to Lenexa, which is uh, how far is actually independence from Lenexa? Maybe 20 minutes. Okay. So not too far. What was your decision? I, I guess I can understand why you would leave, but I mean, did this just Lenexa pop up and then you're like, oh, okay, then, well, I'll go try, try to get that job. Is that how it happened? Or how'd you go from one police department to the other? Yeah, it was kind of a long process and a long journey. So I had, I started having some more of these incidents, kind of like that stabbing that came up and, and I was getting increasingly frustrated and I felt like we were, we were going backwards instead of forwards, I guess, in and how we were handling things in our analyst unit. And so it was, it was getting more and more frustrating and I wasn't seeing us moving in the direction I had hoped we would, I guess is the best way to describe it. And so I had heard that Lenexa, <laughs> Actually, about a year before it finally came out, I heard that Lenexa was in the process of trying to get a second analyst position open over here. And so when I heard that that was part of their discussion, I reached out to the analyst that was over here and I said that I'd like to know more about it because I might be interested down the road if it opens up. And so... And was that Adrian? It was. Adrian Goldbrett, who's been on the show. So yes. <laughs> <All> right, so <laughs> feel free to name drop, right? Okay. Yeah. So I reached out to Adrian and I told her that it was something I might be interested in. I was telling her about some of the things we talked about today. I was telling about some of the frustrations and some of the increasing, I guess, it seemed like there was more discord between civilian and sworn in some ways. And so, because I was getting things like, stay in your lane. 
we've been doing policing for way before there were ever crime analysts. And those were some of the things I was starting to hear more and more. Mm-hmm. So I talked to Adrienne about her spot and she said, yeah, she'd keep me in the loop. And so as we got closer, she ended up telling me that, yeah, we're going to be opening this process in August, maybe I think is when they were opening it. I don't remember, but she said, go ahead and apply and then we'll go through the process. So I put in for that when it opened up and there were, I think they might've interviewed like eight to 10 people. I can't remember for sure, but I knew that they had other seasoned analysts that were going to be applying for it. I knew that they had an internal candidate who'd been working on crime analysis stuff. So I knew that this was going to be a tough process. Mm -hmm. So I did whatever I could to prepare on the front end to get ready for that interview. So what did you do? Just uh, I'm curious. So I I actually came out to Lenexa and I did at least a ride along. I think I did one ride along out here and I was talking to the officers that I could talk to, just kind of get an idea of what crime was like out here. We share some of the same kind of databases, like we're both on LexisNexis. So I was able to go through and look at kind of an idea of what their crime rates were. I was able to see what kind of crimes they're seeing the most of. (laughs) I was getting things like the stats for the city of Lenexa. I actually came out for uh, Adrian, if I could come out and attend one of their command incident meetings with their commanders, just to see what that was like. I tried to make my face recognizable (laughs) for when I came in for the interview was my goal. And they also required before the... Before the interview, they gave you a practical. So it was a robbery series. And so they gave you the basic information of like when it happened, where it happened, and then if they had surveillance or whatever information. So they sent that out ahead of time. And then your practical was to come up with a bulletin that you would put out and then talk about address how you would present that to patrol, how you would present it to investigations and how you would present it to command staff if there was that robbery series happening and you're the analyst presenting the information. Mm-hmm. So by that time, you were pretty comfortable with that. though. Oh, so yeah. That's, that, that's the change right if you would have been asked to do that for you know prior to starting at independence that's way more stressful as opposed to now you're 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 ready this is this is stuff that you've done right well and as an analyst for independence i had regularly been involved with our robbery detective who worked most of those so I mean, I can't even count the number of robbery series that I worked on with him. (laughs) And so having something ready for that, yeah, it was definitely easier. My second go around, it was still stressful because at that point I was really ready to leave independence. I knew there was no more growth opportunities. I knew there was no more chance for like pay raises. I knew that I was at the top of what I could do at independence and Lenexa had growth opportunities. They had training opportunities and they had movement within the department that I could move into. And so I was really ready um, to come to Lenexa prepared. If I wasn't the best qualified candidate, I was going to be the most passionate. <laughs> there you go. That's nice. So then what was the interview process like? Just another they did panel, a panel interview? <laughs> they did. But I mean, the difference with this panel interview was one, we had the practical assignment that we mm-hmm. had to talk about. So I think if I remember correctly, I think we did the practical assignment. We talked about that very first thing. And you talk about how you would present it to patrol and roll call and then command staff, which for me is always basically the same, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but for other people, it's a little bit different. But then it was, they went around and they were asking questions. They asked questions about like doing CDRs, if I knew about like Cellhawk or ZX or those sorts of programs. They were asking about how I would how I would be involved with the different units, whether it was patrol or investigations. They were asking about some of my background experience and what I could bring to the table and more practical uh, crime analysis related questions like 
what would I bring to the table sort of things. And so I actually had a packet I brought with me that had some of my old bulletins. It oh, had portfolio. Uh, I did. Yeah. I had Sean Barry is going to be proud. <laughs> so yeah, I had the, I had this whole portfolio together and it had not just like my resume and everything, but it had my examples of my bulletins. I had examples of like my weekly crime map that I was creating, my weekly uh, report breakdown and crime intel that I was sharing. It had all of that. Plus it had previous like I2 charts I had made, all kinds of different stuff like that, that I was actually able. And then when they asked some of their questions that were practical questions, I actually had an example in my portfolio that I could say, well, here, I'll show you what I've already done and how I could do it. And it was right there handy for me. So having that portfolio really was the best thing I could do for that interview. Nice. Now, so the results then, were you number two this time or number I one? I was not. I was number one. Nice. <laughs> nice. Nice. Now, did, did they tell you like what it was that made you stand out from the other candidates? Um. Well, no, now that you mention it, <laughs> it's funny because so the people that were on the panel, Adrian was on the panel. And then the captain over the analyst unit and then the major mm -hmm. that they all report to, they were all on the interview panel. And so Adrian, Adrian has basically said that my interview was good and that I came in with a lot of experience and that's what really helped. And, and I was passionate <laughs> and it's funny. So the captain who ended up being my captain for my first, I think about a year and maybe not quite a year here. He told me during my very first evaluation with him that he didn't want to go with me. He wanted to go with the internal candidate because they knew what they were getting. Sure. <laughs> But he told me, he said that that was his initial thought. He said, but now in hindsight, now that I'm here, he knows that the right decision was to have me come. Nice. So, I mean, that's positive affirmation, I guess. But he never really said why. Yeah. <laughs> he said, Megan interviewed, oh, I said her name, Megan McCarthy. She's <laughs> getting ready to start at Olathe PD. All right. But she, she interviewed really well. She just didn't have the experience and the background that I did. All right. hmm. Well, to that point to what the captain said, that's the importance of an internship, right? I agree. Uh -huh. we've, we've talked about this plenty of times on the show, just the fact that of your presence in the office as an intern and people can see who you are, how you interact with everybody. Can you, do you show up on time? How do you dress? There's all this stuff that you see over a pro prolonged period of time as an intern that is valuable to somebody trusting whether they want to hire you on full time or not. Right. Well, and I didn't do a technical internship. I just mm -hmm. made sure that I could shadow whenever I could yeah, because I was yeah. working full time. But yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. About the internship. It is so important. And the more that you can make yourself seen, it's harder if you're moving across country. But since I was in the same area, it really wasn't hard at all for me to be able to pop in. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you, you get the job ready to go. You're leaving independence. You're going to Lenexa. And this is when do you start in Lenexa? Oh my word. I started in February of 2020. <laughs> so right before the pandemic hit. <laughs> so, I, so what is it? A couple of months before they tell everybody to go home? No. It so was how like, it work there? It was like four or five weeks. So we start. So when I started, I, I mean, you do the general like onboarding, you have to go through the HR presentations and sign your paper, get your ID, all of that. So my first week was pretty much doing all that HR stuff. Mm -hmm. So then I start, we start training on some of, they use a few different programs than I did at Independence. So 
I'm starting to learn what's the flow here. I'm getting used to it. And then it's the beginning of, well, the end of February is when we started hearing about coronavirus. (laughs) It's starting to become a more popular thing. You're hearing more and more about it. And then by March, we're starting to hear that there's a possibility that we're going to be working from home, that we're going to have to be out of the office for social distancing because the pandemic's coming. And so by, I think it was St. Patrick's Day of 2020 was our very first day that I think I remember we had to start working from home. And at that time, we didn't know how long it was going to be. We knew it was going to be at least until May. Well, at that point, we thought it was only going to be two weeks, but it did end up being until May. And so I was still learning the programs. (laughs) And so I'm just getting signed into everything and getting a workflow going and then bam, go work from home. (laughs) So fortunately, Adrian was able, we use uh, Microsoft Teams here. So Adrian was able to do a lot of screen sharing between us so that she could get me up to speed on a lot of the programs so that I could still do all of that training and still we didn't miss a beat and I honestly I credit that to Adrian because I would have I would not have known how to do that when we started here but she really jumped on board and made sure that we were doing that and our captain was able to get on there to see all of the things we were accomplishing and so it was really a good thing because it showed that while some positions in the department or some positions in the city struggled with working from home we were still able to thrive and we were still able to grow and train and learn. And so when I finally did come back to the office in May, I was good to go. And we were on the ground running. So so then are you given a laptop from the city? So I wasn't. <laughs> when we first started, or when I first started, I'm sorry, I was told it was unlikely that I was going to end up getting a laptop because mm-hmm. unless I really needed it, like if I was going out on something, but I, they didn't have, there was no real necessity for me to have a laptop at that point in time. And then COVID hits and they got um, all these COVID laptops. <laughs> so yeah. they said, here you go. We're going to issue you one of these temporary COVID laptops, which I still have. <laughs> yeah. So is and then are you connected to a VPN? So yes. you're, you got access to secured information yep, at, at the police department. Yep, I'm connected to a VPN and I can I can remote right into my desktop. But yeah, it's a secure VPN, so I can do whatever I need to from my my office at home. Man, what an adventure! <laughs> yes. All right. So now you've been there a couple of years and you recently got certified. I did. With the IACA. And so congratulations on that. Thank you. Do you know what number you are? I don't. Actually, now that you mention it, I should have asked. Yeah, I think I was 32. I am way beyond 32. So congratulations on that. So now you're going to use that information and you're up for promotion, correct? Yes, yes. So first, it took me five years to be eligible (laughs) to take the test. Mm -hmm. So I hit my... Uh, five-year anniversary on January 30th of this year. And so from then, uh, bless their hearts, the IACA uh, certification committee, I was just hitting them up with, hey, I'm trying to get this because I knew the promotion was coming up and mm-hmm. we, I had to have my paperwork turned in by March if I wanted to put in for this. So I kept hounding them about, hey, I want to be able to take the test, but the website's not uploading my information. Here, I got it uploaded. Now I need you guys to check it. <laughs> so bless their hearts for going through all of my stuff. But yeah, so January, I finally became eligible to take the test. And then on March 15th, I took it. And again, they knew I was up for this promotional process. So they really helped me out and expedited all of the grading and everything as much as they could. And I knew by that week, I got the email that I had passed. And I thought that was a miracle (laughs) in and of itself. When I preparing for the test, like doing all the studying. And then when I finally took the test, I was 
not confident I had passed. And then they, <laughs> and then I got the letter that said I, well, I did, I passed. Yeah. And you just took the test there at the department? I did. Yeah. Because Adrian is certified. So she was able to proctor it for me. I had to tell her every single time it tells me, Hey, you can use a calculator for this question. Hey, use Excel for this question. <laughs> so I was telling her so that she could see anytime I pulled something up on the computer, it was legitimate. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. So what was the, was there one section or question that sticks out to you? The section that I thought for sure that I failed was the section about the advanced statistics and reporting or something like that, where it was asking all of these like advanced statistical questions, because I'm not going to lie, I use Excel to help me <laughs> with a lot of that stuff. So trying to remember all of that, I thought for sure that I wasn't going to make it through there. But yeah, I think that's, but I did. significant questions too. there's research related questions on there. Yes, too that I yes. remember as well. Yeah, so. it was advanced statistics and research or something like that, that whole section. I would just kept looking at it thinking, I don't, I hope that I know this answer. <laughs> yeah. So, so as you're coming up, so I'm more interested, I shouldn't say that. In the promotion? Yeah. Let's get to the promotion aspect of this. Cause is this something where they told you, Hey, if you go get certified, then you'll be eligible for promotion or is it a time thing? How does, how is promotion being come up, coming up? So here at Lenexa, and I knew this from the time that I applied for the first position, they have a crime analyst one and a crime analyst two position. So the crime analyst one is more of the, I guess, entry level. Mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. And then crime analyst too, they do have requirements. You have to be at the police department for at least two years and you have to be certified. So, okay. and the way that it's written right now is I think that it has to be just a law enforcement certification. So it could be LEAF or it could be CLIA or something similar to those. And so LEAF wasn't available at the time when I started here. That's just brand new this year, I think, or maybe last year. Last year, yeah. Yeah. And since I was so close to being eligible for CLIA, I just wanted to go for it anyway. So that'll be more, that'll be helpful. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So I went for the CLIA because I was right there and it's my two year mark. So, but now I have to go through on Monday, actually, (laughs) I have the interview process, which is going to be another panel interview. I have no idea what they're going to ask me, Yeah, (laughs) but it's a major and two captains. So I have no idea what's going to come up (laughs) in this interview. Huh? Well, I might have to take that back then about you never having to do it again I know, once right? you interview. I might guess maybe I'm wrong, but yeah, you've done it so many times by now. I am sure you'll do great. <laughs> and I am uh, confident that you're going to get the promotion. So good right. for you. Good effort to get all that put together before your interview there. Right. And it is, it is kind of funny to think about going through this process because basically the only difference between, for me anyway, the only difference between the crime analyst one position and the crime analyst two position is going to be the fact that I am certified. I mean, my day-to-day is going to stay exactly the same. Everything that I do now is essentially the same. I just have a certification behind my name. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I remember when I got certified, I was at Cincinnati Police Department. I didn't necessarily do it for the department. I mean, they gave me a that boy letter. Right letter of recognition in the in my record but it was mostly for me kind of thing so but good good deal all right let's move on to some other topics as we finish up the interview and so let's talk about marcan a little bit is it my guess is you know you you had talked about prior to lenexa reaching out to adrian 
and having the discussion about the potential position. Had you and Adrian already met via Marcan or the IAC, or how did you and you and Adrian meet? So we had, uh, while I was at Independence, my attendance at Marcan was basically sporadic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would go when I was able to, but it wasn't necessarily the something that was like you have to do this, you need to do this. There's good reason for going. It was just a, uh, I mean, if we have time, we can show up. And so I had met her there. I think I had, I actually talked to Adrian prior to Lenexa more at the IACA conference than anywhere else, because I would go to those conferences and then I would see all the people from the metro area. And she was on the board at the time. So she had the giant suite and they would do all the parties in there and (laughs) all that. (laughs) So I would talk to her in that setting more than anywhere. So, and I think that the last one we were at prior to the pandemic was the one in Maryland. Okay. Yeah. Outside of DC. Yeah, just outside of DC. And she was um, on the board still at that time. And I remember that was in 2019, that summer of 2019. And by that point, I was really ready to move on because I wanted more growth opportunities. And I was talking to her about it. And that was when I was really, we were really discussing the new position that was coming open in Lenexa because it was just a few months from opening at that point. All right. And then, all right. So then back to Marcan, then yes. you're, you're currently secretary. I am. And, and you just got that last, last year. And so are you, is Marcan all back up to normal operations? Are you all meeting regularly? Is it in person? Is it still over Zoom or how are you all operating these days? So last year, either last fall or maybe last winter, I don't remember. We started, we were able to We were kind of doing a hybrid. Some people would meet in person and some people would meet over Zoom or GoToMeeting or something like that. We've really started trying to do it in person as much as we can now. We had, it's been hard this year because Kansas City's had crazy weather. But so we meet once a month and we usually, this year we're alternating between two different sites for it. And in January, we had January, I think it was when we rise in COVID again. So we had to cancel our January meeting. And then the next meeting, it like we had a blizzard <laughs> like that night overnight. Yeah. So we had to cancel. So this year, 2022 has been a struggle for us to get back on our feet, but we're back in person. We were in person last month. We're going to be in person this month and going forward, as long as there's no more blizzards, we're, but we are, we're trying to meet back in person as much as we can. It's really been a great place for analysts. There's, there's been several new analysts in the metro area. So it's been a great way for them to connect. We partner or we do Marcan first on our, during our meeting, and then we have a Metro Intel meeting. So that is open to detectives, to analysts, and they can come in and share what's going on just around the Metro so we can all be aware of those crimes. And it's been a really great opportunity to get to know those detectives and those analysts, but it's really been helpful in that Intel sharing because that's been something that in some ways is kind of lacking. I mean, we have a shared Metro list where we send out emails, but it's not the same as when you're able to get together in a room and really look and talk about what are the issues we're seeing. Because it'll be funny, one detective from over here in Kansas will mention that, hey, these people were stealing lottery tickets. And then somebody from the Missouri side will say, hey, we had the same suspects or some other kind of crime like that. And they'll start tying them all together. And then we sometimes have crime lab people come who say, get us the DNA and we'll help you get up ready for court. So it's just been a great place to network and to really help improve those investigations. Yeah, no. And you, you said you meet once a month normally? Correct. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a good way to get attendance up, right? Right. Combine it with a different per, 
purpose. You mentioned the intelligent side of things and having detectives there in that second meeting. So that's a that's an interesting and a very good way of ensuring that your attendance stays stays yeah, high. We were afraid after COVID and the time that we'd had to spend doing it virtually, we were afraid that it would be hard to get that attendance back up there. But 2021, I mean, we started seeing higher numbers than we've seen in a while. I I don't know if it's the highest we've seen since pre-pandemic, because I think we had, we've had a few where we have a lot of people, but I mean, we started to have regular attendance that, I mean, it was a good group that was showing up every single month. And then <clears throat> switching gears a little bit, then you're also the district coordinator for the Kansas Intelligence Association. I so am the I district one coordinator. <laughs> oh, the district one coordinator. Okay. So then is that... Is that something that you're meeting on regularly or how does that differ? During So during the pandemic, they were doing a lot of Zoom meetings mm-hmm. for the Kansas Intelligence Association. And there's, I'm not going to remember how many districts there are now, <laughs> but there are several districts. And so they were doing regular Zoom meetings. They do have a, there's an annual conference that usually meets in central Kansas. And they really cater to the analysts like KBI, the FBI, and then some of those smaller, more rural agencies. District 1 really covers, it covers about five counties in Mm -hmm. eastern Kansas. And most of them are really this metro area. So we have quite a different kind of crime than what they're seeing out in western Kansas. So the main meetings that we have there is they have the annual conference. And then I think it's quarterly they try to meet to get them all together. It's just harder because it's such a larger area. It's the entire state of Kansas instead of just the metro area. So it's not as frequent, but they do try to do Zoom calls. They were doing them once a week or once a month, but we really only meet in person annually to once a quarter. So is this training? Is this sharing intelligence? The annual conference. Yeah, it's a little bit, it is a little bit of both. The meetings that they were doing by Zoom, those were intelligence sharing. And it's hard because a lot of the things that apply to the Metro don't apply to Western Kansas because there's not a lot out there. (laughs) Right. It is is a big state, but there, they were definitely things that were interesting that would come up. They would talk about, in some of those meetings, they would talk about things like uh, white supremacist group meetings (laughs) or things that are happening out on the Western side that Again, I don't necessarily think of here in the metro, which those things are probably happening here, but it's so much more a part of what they're dealing with more regularly than what I deal with over here in the metro. And then the annual conference is training. They would put together just a training like a training program, it's usually just a one or a two day thing where they would have different courses and sessions that you could go to throughout the day. I know in the last conference that was a couple of months ago, they had um, the FBI did several different sessions that where they were talking about different programs that they use. Okay, interesting. Well, we'll put some links in the in the show notes for some of these associations if folks are interested in learning more about them. As I mentioned in your intro, you teach digital safety for kids and families. Correct. And and so is that something that you're doing as a function of the police department or is that extracurricular? Uh, I am doing it as a function of the police department. Yes. Well, it helps me. It's kind of a community policing sort of role that I, I am in, but I've really initiated it because it's something that I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about keeping these kids safe because as I read reports every day, I see all these reports of what kids are having happen to them or that they get involved in through the use of their technology. And so it's been 
as I've been reading that over and over and over again, the last several years, really, even while I was in independence, I really was passionate about trying to make parents aware because I think mostly these kids are getting involved in things and their parents have no clue what's going on in their own house. And just because technology is so different now than when we were kids. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't have a phone until I was driving when I was 16. And it was like that green analog bar. You couldn't (laughs) text, you could only put numbers in it. It was like a brick in my hand. And so we, I mean, parents don't know what these kids are able to access from their devices. So I do it as a function of the police department. They sponsor, they sponsor me and and put their name on it too, as part of this presentation. But it was something that I created based on what I've been seeing in my, in my dated career. So, I mean, what are your top tips that you usually tell parents? Honestly, the biggest thing that I repeat over and over and over again is um, talk to your kids. I say talk to your kids early and talk to them often because the only way that your kids are going to tell you when something is happening is if they know that they have that relationship with you. They know that you've already had these discussions. So talk about things like pornography with your kids. Talk about things like sex. And sometimes you have to do it earlier than you want to. But I mean, we have we have cases where we have kids over and over again who said that they didn't want to say anything either because they were embarrassed or they were afraid their parents would be upset with them. Yeah. These kids are victims and they're not coming forward because they're afraid their parents are going to be upset. Me as a parent, I don't want my son to ever think he can't say something like that to me. If someone is doing something to my child, I want to know, and I'm not going to get upset with him if somebody else is victimizing him. And so that is my number one biggest thing is start having these conversations, whether it's about technology, about sex, even things like bullying or vapes or whatever it is, just start having those conversations while they're young. So they know as you get older or as they get older, they can come to you with those things. Yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting. My, my son's in Boy Scouts. And there is a cyber chip at various ages and grades that he's earned. And I wrongly, I just assumed that a lot of this cyber education would have went on in the school. And then he's like, oh, no, this is kind of new to me. Maybe some schools do cover it, but I don't think it's the norm. Yeah. So don't, I would, my other point would be, don't assume that the school is, yeah. is teaching the kids, right? Yeah, for Back sure. to your point to <laughs> ask your kids and, and whatnot about, about different stuff. So I think the, going along with that, I think the other thing I would mention is don't assume that just because they have a school device that the school is monitoring what happens on that device, because oh. we have case after case after case that the kids that are getting involved in things, whether it's downloading pornography or if they're sending out nudes, they're doing it from their school issued devices just as much from personal devices. So oh, don't no, assume that's... that that's being filtered out just because it's a school device. That's interesting. Because, yeah, I would think that there would be some kind of. And some, and again, some schools do, but I would not assume that. And I would make sure if your kids are coming home with school devices, talk to their teachers or their admin and find out what are the kinds of things that they're filtering and what are they actually screening on these devices? Yeah. What do they have access to? Yeah. Yeah, correct. Good point. All right. Well, hey, that good work on that, showing the initiative and creating that class and and teaching that and you've you've taught it how how often do you teach this class the it's the workshop i just really designed it over the last summer so 2021 Mm -hmm. i started doing presentations in november 
right before the holidays. <laughs> so then I took a break for the holidays. And since January, uh, it's really been two, at least two to three a month, sometimes more than that. Wow. Okay. And it's at schools, churches, it's for the community, All different right. sorts of events. And you get, you've gotten pretty good feedback. Yeah. At, it's been overwhelmingly positive. There's good. been a few who weren't so interested in it, but the general consensus has been overwhelmingly positive nice. and well, and terrified. They're all terrified <laughs> yeah. from what I tell them, but, <laughs> but oh, in a man. good way, I guess, because now they're aware. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right. We're very good. All right. Well, our last segment of the show is words to the world. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Lindsay, what are your words to the world? Well, I mentioned some of the struggles that I've had since I've been in law enforcement. And so my words to the world would be that you should always be an advocate for yourself and for your position. It can be hard and it can be scary uh, to even consider leaving a position that you know and that you're comfortable with. And it's scary to risk stepping into something new, but your mental health and your happiness are worth protecting too. So don't settle just because it seems easier or because you're afraid of change. If you're in a position where you're not feeling appreciated, if you're being taken for granted with no opportunities for growth and advancement, or if you're stuck in a toxic or a hostile work environment, just know that there's better places out there. It might take some digging to find them, but they are out there and it's worth it to move on. For you, for your family, for your general well-being, it is definitely worth it. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Lindsay. Thank you so much, and you be safe. All right, thanks. You too. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.